Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> This is Mark Leon Goldberg, your host, back after a bit of a hiatus, uh, but back in a big way. Really interesting conversation today with the uh, historian Gary Bass. Uh, Gary is probably well known to folks in the human rights uh, and humanitarian field for his work examining the politics of war crimes tribunals and another book uh, that looks at the history of humanitarian intervention. But his new book, which is called The Blood Telegram, takes a look at a forgotten uh, piece of, of sort of human rights and humanitarian history, which is the genocide or the potential genocide, or people argue probably was a genocide, uh, that occurred in Bangladesh after the separation of Bangladesh from Pakistan in the early 1970s. Gary and I talk about this book, uh, which reflects rather poorly on uh, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, uh, in case you needed more uh, in the ledger against them. But uh, we talk about other things. We talk about how you go about researching a piece of history like this. Anyway, uh, have a listen and enjoy. So I guess maybe by way of um, you know kicking this conversation off, do you want to provide some context, some of the historical context in which sort of we get this this blood telegram sent, uh, which we'll get into, the, I think, the specifics of the blood telegram, which is fascinating. Um, but, but for now, maybe just sort of set the scene for us. So, I mean, I guess the scene starts with, uh, you know, a, ser- uh, a, a democratic election in Pakistan uh, in 1970, a really historic you know, remarkably free and fair democratic election um, in uh, in both parts of Pakistan. Pakistan in this period uh, consists of two different wings, uh, as they're called. Uh, so uh, the West Wing of Pakistan is present-day what we know just as Pakistan. Um, and the East Wing is uh, is present-day Bangladesh. So you have West Pakistan and East Pakistan, which are separated by a thousand miles of India. Um, and they are in 1970 under a military dictatorship, which kind of remarkably allows this um, this election. And the election is won overwhelmingly uh, by Bengali nationalists. And there's a series of constitutional negotiations. The military is sort of trying to figure out what it's going to do. And finally, the military, the, the constitutional negotiations go nowhere, and the military launches this uh, devastating crackdown on, on East Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that starts um, on the night of March 25th, 1971. So at this point, so, the, um, like, yeah. the civilian leadership... Uh, Presumably is Bengali, but the the military leadership is anti-Bengali. You could say the yeah. I mean the 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 military leadership is you know is largely made made up of Urdu speaking Punjabi military elites, uh, and here you have the election being won by a Bengali nationalist who you know could make a claim. You know, he's overwhelmingly won seats in East Pakistan, but he could now make the claim to be uh, prime minister of all of Pakistan, of both West Pakistan and East Pakistan. 
Um, and that's something that the military is uh, really uncomfortable with. Um, so yeah, this, this civilian leader uh, who, whose daughter actually is the current prime minister right. of Bangladesh. Um, so, okay. So, so, so that, so, so the, the, you, you were saying that sort of on this, on this day, the, the army sort of starts what was essentially a, a mass slaughter and, and a mass, you know, one of the, I guess the first mass atrocity event of the 1970s, right? Uh, well, it's 1971. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, the, but you know, it's a really, um, it's a devastating crackdown. Um, it's something that is, you know, is deeply shocking to uh, to to the American diplomats who are in in Dhaka, which is now the capital of Bangladesh, is then the capital of East Pakistan. The American diplomats who are witnessing this, and these are guys who know that you know Pakistan is a strong Cold War ally of the United States. So they understand that actually, you know, the the picture they're supposed to be sending back to Washington is, you know, here we have a, you know, this is our reliable, responsible ally behaving in reliable and responsible ways, but what they're seeing uh, is very different. And so, so, so what's I guess what's happening on the ground at this point? So how how sort of savage is is the brutality? So it's. Yeah, I mean it's really it's a it's a very very bloody picture. Um, you have you have tanks in the streets. You have um, machine gun fire. You have sections of the city that are on fire. Um, and you you use the the the, the G word. You use genocide in in the the title of your book. Uh, I do. Um, there's a lot of you know there, there's a big and you know contentious debate about. Uh, whether or not, you know, this qualifies as genocide and in what way it qualifies as genocide. Um, and the the way in which it's talked about as a genocide in Bangladesh is actually not the way in which uh, it's, it's talked about by the American diplomats uh, in the book. That in Bangladesh, it's sort of talk, it's talked about as a as a genocide against the entire Bengali population. Um, and that's the way that it's that it's usually talked about in India too, um, but the American diplomats are talking about something more specific, um, which is that the, the Pakistan army seems to be intentionally targeting the the, the Hindu minority. There's about about 13 percent of the Bengali population in East Pakistan is Hindu, um, and there there seems to be a specific targeting. Um, of these Hindus, um, and that's what that's what the American diplomats are singling out as genocide. Hmm. That's interesting. That um, so uh, so so this this sort of massacre, this genocide, however defined, is is ongoing, um, and this this telegram happens. Can you sort of, I guess, describe. You know, I guess, to sort of describe the telegram and sort of how it came how it came about and and sort of the significance. Right. Right. By the way, just one more thing on yeah, on, yeah. on terminology and on genocide is that um, there there's obviously a sort of you know there's a there's a punch there's a shock to the use of the word genocide, um, but for you know for people who for people who sort of who work on human rights or who or who work on international law, it's not really that genocide is sort of is worse than crimes against humanity. 
Um, so some of the time, I think people think there's more at stake in that debate. Um, if you're killing huge numbers of civilians in a systematic way, you know, that, that's totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, it, yeah, I mean, it, it so, comes down it, to this where there's this, you know, this specific definition of genocide, uh, you know, under international law, which is sort of not just killing a lot of people, uh, but killing a lot of people because of sort of who they are. Uh, yeah, and, with, and, and having that intent, intent to destroy. It, absolutely, yeah. It, and it's that intent that I think distinguishes genocide from your everyday mass atrocity. But you're, are you saying sort of that, um, or do you have evidence uh, that there was this genocidal intent uh, either against or against this, the, the, the um, Hindu minority that you're talking about? Well, there, there are, there, there's, Several forms of evidence, but we don't have access to, uh, you know, to the private deliberations of the army. So it's not, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a completely settled story because those records just aren't available. Mm-hmm. Um, pe- there are people who are trying, but it's um, so there are, you know, there's a there's a number of forms of evidence. Um, there is first of all the the striking fact. That according to Indian records, there something like 10 million refugees flee one flee uh, from East Pakistan into India, one of the biggest refugee flows at, uh, in human history. And according to the Indian records, um, something between 80 and 90 percent of them are Hindus, um, and that I think is quite striking. It's it's something that the Indians actually try and cover up because they're afraid that this may ignite Hindu-Muslim riots communal communal violence um, within India. But that's the kind of thing, you know, that, that, you know, that's happening for a reason. There's also, you know, a lot of reporting um, from from American diplomats, from foreign correspondents, from Sid Shanberg, who's a reporter for the New York Times, probably most famous. People know best, people have seen the movie The Killing Fields. Um, He's one of two main characters. That's him. Uh, a few years later, covering the fall of Cambodia, but Sid Chanberg reports about the, you know, about the targeting of Hindus. Um, and there's also some. There was a post-war Pakistani Judicial Commission, where you get some testimony um, from people in the army about um, about some targeting. Um, so taken together, I think that's, you know, it's it's highly suggestive, um, but it's not. You know, this is not this is not something like, you know, having captured documents where you can see, you know, you know, obvious genocidal intent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a less definitive picture than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe maybe just to digress for 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 one moment, I, I, you know, I'm wondering why you know. Among sort of people who follow human rights and 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 writers and journalists, you know, you, you uh, this this genocide I think is is forgotten as as you say in the title. I mean, it's not a chapter in like Samantha Power's book. Um, uh, you know, she she's you know she she doesn't include which which is by the way a very long book. I mean, I don't think no, of course, but it's I also, don't think her publisher was looking for like what you need are many more chapters here, more chapters, like, right? A, but you know, it's it's intended and listen, it's you know, it's it's a a wonderful book. It it, it changed. You it's know, a wonderful thinking. book. You know, yeah. it really it yeah. goes without. It's saying. a wonderful book. It's it's a wonderful book, but you know, and and it sort of claims to be this an, an authoritative take on U.S. 
you know, U.S. government's response to genocide, since genocide was defined as a thing, uh, yet it, it, it sort of skips over this event, uh, which I think is probably arguably what makes your, your book so important. Um, but I'm wondering sort of why, I mean, why do you think this was forgotten? Like why would, for example, the most authoritative book on you know, genocide, and, and it was published you know, uh, in 2003 or 2002, uh, like why is this skipped over? Why is this a forgotten genocide? I think, I mean, I think Asia has come into focus for um, not just for human rights people, but for everyone who's sort of, you know, who's studying world politics, right? It's just, it looms so much larger. So I think you have people who previously were not particularly well informed about Asia who are now trying to become better informed about Asia. Um, that all of, you know, all of my training was on, um, was on different parts of the world, was on Europe and the Middle East and the former Yugoslavia. Um, and then, you know, in in recent years, I've been trying to get up to speed on East Asia and South Asia. Um, but I think, it's a, you know, that's where the, you know, the center of gravity has shifted mm -hmm. to. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more attention to that. And then, you know, my, you know, so I work on human rights, so I'm kind of looking for human rights things that, you know, are interesting and can fit into the larger, you know, the larger excellent work, including Samantha Power's work, including, you know, Michael Walter, including mm -hmm. Philip Gravich, including a lot of other people who've done great stuff. Um, but I think in other fields, you know, you have people who are interested in international political economy who are now feeling like now I need, you know, I really need to know a lot more about, you know, what's going on in Southeast Asia. So how did you, I mean, how did you come to come to this story? Oh, I had, I mean, I, I had heard about it some, um, in a, you know, in a couple of different places, um, in, uh, Michael Walter's book, Just and Unjust Wars, um, mm -hmm. where, where he talks about it. Um, so that, that was, I think that, you know, I was in college. When right. I, read I mean, that was published in like the sixties, right? I mean, <laughs> that for, it first, first came edition. out in 19, it first came out in 1977. 77. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. It's so one I of my know. favorite books too. We, I think yeah. we, I think we share, <laughs> To share yeah. share a fondness for these kind of books. Yeah, he he's amazing. I mean, it's just completely amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's also in Midnight's Children, um, mm -hmm. in Salman Rushdie's you know great novel. There's a really really harrowing uh, section that's uh, set uh, you know during that 1971 war, um, and you know that you know I. You know, reading those two things made me curious, and it was just something that I, you know, I didn't know that much about, and always meant to get back to and figure it out. It's something that I, you know, that is largely forgotten, as you, you know, as you say, uh, in the United States. But it's, but it's something that looms, you know, quite large um, in South Asia. That it, you know, it's the, def, you know, the defining national trauma. In Bangladesh, which is the eighth largest country in the world, which has a population bigger than Russia, bigger than uh, bigger than Japan, um, so you know, a big and important place, um, and it's also something that India, you know, Indians and Pakistanis really remember. And so, so did you just uh, you sort of came to this idea? Did you just sort of submit sort of voluminous uh, FOIA requests, or, or how did you how did you sort of um, you know do the hard work of actually un unpacking the story? So I, I still have ongoing declassification requests, um, which are done actually not under FOIA, 
um, under something called mandatory declassification review, which is kind of, you know, is it's under the terms of an executive order rather than the Freedom of Information Act, but mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of similar kind of thing. Um, but there, there's a, you know, tons of stuff that has been uh, in recent years declassified um, through uh, through the Nixon Library, uh, through uh, through the National Archives, which have the State Department records, um, and in India, there's also there's you know there's foreign ministry papers, which you can you know which you can now get into. There is papers from the Prime Minister's Secretariat, which are actually somewhat less informative. I sort of thought that would be the great stuff, but it's actually not. Um, and there's stuff more the, in a different archive uh, that are, which are papers of Indira, uh, Indira Gandhi's, you know, right-hand man. Um, his papers are stored, and those, those are the, you know, the gold mine. That's the best stuff on the Indian side. Um, and they're the White House tapes, which are in, incredibly unwieldy to work with. There's sort of thousands and thousands of hours of them. Um, they're they're not very well organized. They're they're kind of hard to work through. You um, you have to listen, you know, just hours and hours. And when you're making transcripts, you have to go over the same thing over and over again. Um, so those those were the things that I was trying to do. Um, and there's a ton. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that's out there now. Um, some of it is still held back. So there's, you know, there are still lots of bleeps on the White House tapes. Some of those have since been, uh, the State Department has made some transcripts so you can actually see what's bleeped out, um, which is interesting. Um, so there, you know, there was a t- it turned out that there was a ton, there was a, a ton of material. So where, um, I guess, where did you come across the, the, the telegram itself? So the, te- uh, the so the blood telegram, the actual blood telegram, um, which is a which is a telegram sent sent by a name sent by a guy named Archer Blood, um, is in the National Archives in Washington. Um, sorry, outside of Washington in College Park, Maryland. Um, Archives two, um, as it's known in College Park, Maryland. There's also um, there's also a copy of it. Uh, in Henry Kissinger's files at the Nixon Library. Mm-hmm. Um, and had it been published before? Uh, yes, yes. This is not the first. This is not the first time that that it, that that's being published. Um, you know, I'm trying to you know do as much as possible, tell the full story. But mm-hmm. there, that document has been out. Um, this is not, I wasn't the person. You know, I don't want to. For a second, claim that I was the person who, who dug this up, um, and you know, Bangladeshis know who Archer Blood is. He's, you know, he's a he's a pretty revered figure um, mm-hmm. among, yeah, um, among certain circles in Bangladesh. So, so, so let's talk about the, the actual sort of content of the telegram. Um, can you maybe sort of set the, the the scene for 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 sort of who contributed it and and sort of you know what it what it contained and why it was significant. Yeah, so we, I mean, when when the killing starts uh, in you know in March 25th of 1971, the 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 top U.S. diplomat in East Pakistan is Archer Blood. Um, it's a sort of courtly, 
guy originally from Virginia, uh, served in the Navy in World War II, a sort of patriotic uh, foreign service officer who's got a good amount of, of overseas experience, um, and an, an ambitious guy who's clear, you know, clearly on a track to be an ambassador, maybe beyond that to be an assistant secretary of state. Uh, this is, he's 48 years old. Um, he's the exact same age as Henry Kissinger, uh, who's also 48. Um, and, you know, this is somebody whose career is going somewhere and who cares about his career as well as caring about doing a good job. Um, and when, when the killing starts in blood and his officials are doing, you know, what they're supposed to do, that, you know, your political officers are out trying to gather as much information about what is happening. And it's, you know, the reporting is massive. Uh, you know, they're sending in cable after cable after cable detailing, you know, the, the extent of the killing, the nature of the killing, um, the political impact of the killing. So they're very, you know, they're, it's a highly professional outfit, um, and they're operating in, you know, quite difficult conditions. They're, the transmitter that they're using is they're, they're transmitting secretly. The only reason why they have a transmitter at all is because on the night that the crackdown started, there were two American officials who sort of raced through the streets of Dhaka getting shot at in order to get the, to the consulate to set the transmitter up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, you know, they're operating under really, um, you know, pretty terrifying conditions. Um, and they keep reporting all this stuff to Washington, and they're expecting some response. You know, they're not expecting that the United States is going to sever its alliance with Pakistan, um, but they are expecting something, um, some kind of, you know, public condemnation, uh, you know, some or some instructions to them about what they're supposed to do. And they're getting, they're sort of shocked by the, you know, the extent of silence. And a, a few days in, they trying to sort of ratchet up the volume because they don't, you know, they're like, well, maybe, you know, people, it's just not getting, the message isn't getting through. Um, they send in a cable with the subject line, um, selective genocide, hmm. um, to, you know, intentionally, it's not a particularly kind of lawyerly use of the word. They're trying mm-hmm. to get people's attention and to, say, you know. They want to make sure people actually read this this time. Yeah. Because right. are they just sort right. of unsure that people are, are reading it? Or they, they, they don't really know why, I guess, at this point, why it's being, you know, they, they're being systematically they know, ignored? They know someone is reading it, mm-hmm. but they feel like it's not, you know, it's not getting traction at the level where it would need to get traction. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you know, in, in particular, in, you know, in the Nixon administration where it needs to get traction is, is not the State Department at all, but in the White House. Um, so it's not, but it, it's not getting, it actually is is getting traction among Kissinger's staff, mm-hmm. the White House staff. Kissinger at this point is is the White House National Security Advisor, and his staff, um, his South Asia expert, um, is sending this stuff up and say, you know, saying this is blood says it's a reign of terror, and Kissinger's White House staffer uses the phrase "reign of terror" mm-hmm. and kind of passing it up. So, so they're actually, I mean, it's actually not a problem of volume. Their volume is fine. Um, they don't know that, but it's a problem that, you know, that, you know, Nixon and Kissinger are just steering U.S. foreign policy in a different direction. Um, so they, so after the selective genocide cable doesn't do anything, they try, um, in early April, 
they try, you know, they're, by this point, they're, you know, really frustrated. Some of them are quite disillusioned. Um, this is 1971, so you have a bunch of people in the Foreign Service who are disillusioned anyway over the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the one of the reforms that's being put in place in the Foreign Service um, because of all this sort of ferment um, about the Vietnam War is the idea that you, of a dissent channel. Mm-hmm. that you can send formal dissent cables that say, we believe that American foreign policy is actually wrong here. Yeah. Um, so it's this new, you know, and it's, so it's not the same as somebody resigning in protest or leaking, you know, leaking everything you've got to the New York times, mm-hmm. um, which is not, you know, which is really not, uh, Archer Blood's style. Um, He's a, you know, he's an institutional loyalist. He's not, you know, there are people on Kissinger's staff who are, who are resigning over Cambodia. That's not blood. That's not blood style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but one one of his aides, a guy named Scott Butcher, uh, drafts up a dissent cable. Um, so you have you have this. I mean, incredibly, you have. Uh, another senior officer in the consulate is named Andrew Kilgore. So they're all making, you know, before the shooting started, they were all making these sort of morbid jokes about cables that were written Blood by and Butcher. Kilgore. As a book author, though, you know, you have to appreciate the, uh, the, the Archer Blood name in the telegram. I would imagine it makes for a very convenient title. Oh, yeah. No, that's definitely, I mean, like when when... <laughs> It's the kind of thing that if you if you made it up, it would just be like incredibly bad hacky right. <laughs> writing. That like, hey, so you know, there, you know, the junior political officer is Butcher, and then there's Kilgore, and then there's Blood. Like, it's really, you know, aside from the fact that it's true, it's like terrible, terrible <laughs> writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, uh, so Butcher drafts his cable and the cable kind of zings around the consulate and people are signing on to it. And then, you know, it's going to go up to the boss, to Archer Blood, and he's going to have to decide what he's going to do with this. He knows, you know, for him, the stakes are much, much higher than for anybody else. Um, for junior guys, you know, they, for not, you know, for, for junior men and women uh, staffing the consulate, they're at less risk of retaliation yeah. from the State Department. And it's not uh, like, you know, Nixon or Kissinger are retributive, so, you know, he'll be okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure they appreciated the full extent right. to which Nixon and Kissinger are vindictive. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, they know this is, you know, it is, it's clear that this is kind of a career-killing thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part, part of why I think, you know, blood makes this, you know, this amazing character is because, you know, he, he's not a, he's not a complete saint, right? I mean, he cares about his career. He's devoted himself to his career. It's an idealistic career, right? I mean, he's somebody who, you know, has a vision of the, you know, the American role in the world and, you know, is spreading it, but he's, you know, he he wants to be an ambassador. He wants, he you know, he wants to move up, and he knows that this is not, you know, this is not going to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
Uh, but, you know, he thinks about it and he has, you know, he knows people who have been killed, people who he really likes have been killed. There's a, there's a professor at Dhaka University, a sort of very gentle pacifist guy who reminds blood of, San, of Santa Claus. Uh, who was who Hindu and uh, at, at the start of the crackdown is hauled out and shot. And Blood is, re- is really, really shaken by the death of this, you know, this sort of gentle pacifist professor mm-hmm. um, who wrote a book called Buddha the Humanist. Um, so, you know, possibly not the world's most dangerous person. Right. Um, so blood is, re- you know, is really, really shaken by this. So he saw, you know, he he endorses the cable. He sends it out. He could have, you know, he could have pulled the punch and said, you know, hey, my whole consulate wants to send this thing in. I want nothing to do with this, but I'm transmitting it. Um, but instead, he said, you know, he he signs on to it, um, and he adds, he's or he endorses it, and he adds a kicker saying, in addition, you know, the cable says. It accuses the United States of moral bankruptcy in the face of genocide. It is an incredibly harsh cable. Mm-hmm. Um, it says that the United States has been silent in the face of the quashing of democracy, silent in the face of this, you know, all this brutality against civilians. So it's a really, really, you know, stunningly harsh cable to send in. Um, and Blood adds. You know, in addition, he had, you know, kind of knowing that this is going to go to Washington, he has a kind of more pragmatic point, which is, you know, by the way, the Bengalis are going to win the Civil War, that once you've, you know, once the, once you unleash the army on this, you know, Bengali nationalist population, then they're going to, for, you know, they're going to have themselves a guerrilla war, and eventually they're going to win. Mm-hmm. So why why do we want to be on the side of the guys who are going to lose this? And it's probably, uh, I would imagine, it's probably probably worth pointing out, and and you know, I would imagine you'd agree that that you know Pakistan, if not exactly a U.S. client state, was nevertheless heavily dependent on U.S. military aid. So presumably, I mean, the U.S. had a lot of sort of levers it could pull to influence yeah. uh, Pakistan's decision, and so you know. It, and presumably, yeah. it, it didn't even have to be that much, right? Like maybe pre- just like the threat of withholding military aid, or the threat of not repairing a few, you know, of uh, you know American airplanes that are in the Pakistani Air Force, might have might have dissuaded this this campaign of terror. Um, you know, it, it it's hard to know, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, I don't know exactly what would have worked. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think that the United States had unlimited influence mm-hmm. over uh, the the people making decisions in West Pakistan. Um, I'm sure that there were limits to American influence, and I'm sure that you know, there, you know, at some point, the uh, you know the the Pakistani generals would have said, you know, what, that's too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's weird that is, you know, Nixon, yeah. Nixon, exactly right that Nixon and Kissinger, who are usually the masters of uh, exercising leverage and are very proud, you know, very proud of their ability to exercise leverage over foreign countries. And, you know, they think, you know, nobody ever does things for you just because you're a nice guy, right? That's their view. You, you need to exert leverage. And here they have, you know, considerable leverage, especially before, um, you know, some of Kissinger's apologists like to say, oh, there's nothing the United States could have done. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, what the, what, you know, when the Pakistan, when the Pakistan army felt that its back was up against the wall, there's nothing that the Americans can do. But I think, you know, that, that criticism, I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there was a limit somewhere, but first of all, it's amazing that Nixon and Kissinger just didn't try and explore, you know, explore the, the limits of U.S. influence, right? Like this is one of those moments. This is when you use your influence. This is, you know, so, uh, so th- that's the first thing, but the um, but secondly is uh, this the sort of pro Kissinger line tends to limit the discussion to once the civil war is actually ongoing. But in fact, I mean, the most useful thing might have been to press press the Pakistan army just not to start the crackdown in the first place, to say there will be some sort of constitutional deal, some sort of federal arrangement, um, some, you know, some version of autonomy, which will work in a highly imperfect way. But once you guys start shooting, then that's the thing that really dooms the country to breaking up, Um, which, by the way, doesn't, you know, doesn't, from a Cold War perspective, it doesn't really serve the, it doesn't really serve the strategic interest of the United States to have a Cold War ally cracked up and sidelined. Um, so, you know, there's kind of, there's a sort of realist case to be made. Um, so I guess what are trying, trying to make, which Nixon and Kissinger totally blow off. I mean, they make Kissinger later says, um, you know, if, you know, if we had known we would have, um, we would, we would have been asking, we would have been asking them not to do the crackdown. But in fact, they did know they had meetings. They, you know, they discussed the possibility. They, you know, there were option memos put in front of them and they decided, no, we are not going to tell these guys to uphold the democratic election results. No, we are not going to suggest that they make some kind of peaceful deal. And no, we are not going to tell them, you know, don't open fire on your own people. So what was holding, what, what was holding them back? And what, I guess, what, what, I mean, I, I, I sort of know the answer to this, uh, but I'd like to hear you say it. Uh, so what, what was driving, what was the ultimate sort of driving force right now, uh, right at that point in, in sort of U.S. policy on, on the region? So there's a, there's a range of things going from sort of the most, um, the most understandable to the, the sort of the less defensible. So the things that are sort of most understandable are, you know, Pakistan is a, Pakistan is an ally, and you don't want to be seen throwing your allies overboard. India, even though it's ostensibly non-aligned, is obviously pro-Soviet, and uh, Mrs. Gandhi is surrounded by uh, some very, very pro-Soviet advisors, people like Pian Hoxar and D.P. Dar, who are, you know, emphatically pro-Soviet. Um, so, you know, Winston Lord, who was, Kiss- you know, Kissinger's right-hand man uh, through much of this period, says, you know, because of the Cold War, we were going to be, you know, we we were going to be tilting toward Pakistan and tilting away, uh, tilting away from India. Um, next up is China. Um, the Kissinger makes his first secret trip to Beijing in July of 1971. Uh, Pakistan's military crackdown starts in in March of 1971. So these two things are unwinding in parallel at the same time. And Pakistan is 
one of two back channels that's really bearing fruit to China. The other one is Romania. Um, but Pakistan becomes the dominant channel um, for the U.S. to get secret messages back and forth to, uh, to Beijing. So Nixon and Kissinger feel indebted. Nixon and Kissinger want their China opening to come off. Um, so they're, you know, even without, even without, you know, Winston Lord says, even without China, we would have been leaning toward Pakistan. It's not just because of China. Mm-hmm. But, that's but that certainly helped. Yeah, I would imagine that sort of the, the Cer- confluence of those two reasons, I would imagine. Certainly a factor. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think for people who, who, who are impressed, um, as I am, by, by the opening to China and who think that it's a historic achievement, as I do, um, I think you, you know, you also need to remember, okay, that is a great human achievement. Sorry, that is a great uh, historic achievement. But also just remember the human cost that's paid for it in Bengali lives and in India having to shelter 10 million refugees in impoverished, mm-hmm. um, unstable border states that were in pretty rough shape even before you have all these refugees washing into West Bengal and Assam and Tripura. Um, so, which is, I should say, which is not sort of, I think, part of the popular narrative by any stretch. So, I mean, that's, that's another sort of thing, important contribution. Um, I guess what strikes me is there's this, like, you know, inconvenience of timing uh, from a U.S. You know, policy perspective where you have this, this one overarching goal, uh, which is, you know, opening with China, but then you have, you know, this, this sort of genocide happening under, under their nose. Uh, and you yeah. look at, I mean, just kind of look at, like, sort of other U.S. responses to genocide or other sort of outbreaks of genocide, and, and sort of the timing always seems to be inconvenient. Um, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, uh, uh, sort of the Darfur genocide sort of happened and under, unfolded sort of just as the U.S. was making progress on sort of Sudan, South Sudan. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so you have, you wonder if sort of the presence of these competing priorities in a way enables um, nefarious regimes from undertaking these massive human rights violations. Um, I mean, I think that's right, and I think that you know certainly for the you know the the Pakistani dictator Yahya Khan, he you know he's well aware that like right now I am really useful to the Americans, um, and he you know he takes advantage of that. He knows that this is not the moment where. Nixon, Kissinger, you know, he can tell Nixon and Kissinger don't want to throw him overboard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he, ta- he takes full, full advantage of that. The one way in which this, this, one, this case, I think, is different from a lot of other instances of mass atrocity is that, um, you know, in Darfur, the United States was not supporting the Sudanese government, right? The mm-hmm. United States was an outside player. In Rwanda, the United States is an outside actor. So it's sort of something happening in a in a distant part of the world. The United States is not deeply involved. The question is whether or not the United States or outside powers, or sort of you know just generally people who think that human rights are important, if there's anything that can be done. Um, but here, the U.S. is deeply, deeply involved. Right? This is a close American ally um, that's using U.S. weapons. That's being you know that's you you know they're they're heavily heavily reliant on the united states so it's a you know it's a very it's a very awkward and very uncomfortable thing um but unfortunately this you know that's you know that's the history um and finally just on the um the sort of least defensible of the nixon and kissinger motives um is there's this just seething hostility uh towards india 
um, and a real, you know, indifference to to the suffering of the Bengalis, um, which is, you know, it's not just a matter of realpolitik. I mean, there's, you know, I think the way that we tend to think about Nixon and Kissinger is they're sort of master players at the chessboard. Um, and if they made this sort of cold calculation, then they would stick with the cold calculation. But in fact, you know, Nixon really has fire in his belly um, about how much he hates, uh, how much he hates Indira Gandhi, um, his contempt for Indians, which on the White House tapes, you know, he talks about it all the time. He has almost a Pavlovian reaction when, when people mention India. Does he use like colorful racial slurs? Um, he's he known he to does, do that other although, ethnic groups. So he d- he does, but that's actually I think the least you know yeah. the sort of the least important part of it, right? That ju- you know the fact that Nixon was you know was kind of a bigot is I don't you know I don't I think is not so surprising. I was actually surprised. I mean the depth of you know there are things he says about how you know the Indians need a mass famine, um, which is in a country that has had you know, terrible famines, the Bengal famine, which was one of, you know, one of the worst disasters uh, that India has ever experienced, an incredible loss of life. So to wish that on them is really, you know, is vicious in a way that I just couldn't have expected. It's like, right? we've always known that they've been amoral, but now you can say that they're immoral as well. There, I mean, there's a, there's just a, you know, there's an anger to it. Um, you know, it's vitriolic, it's repetitive. Um, you know, and it doesn't really fit with the picture of, you know, here we have, you know, cold masters of realpolitik, right? I mean, I don't think this is what you would have heard if, you, you know, you had tapes of Metternich. Um, it's, um, That's a good it's, line. <laughs> it's a very, it's yeah. a very different, it's a very different kind of picture. So. Let me. I'm just sort of. Sort of I, I. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I, this is this is fascinating. I want to maybe fast forward to today. I was in Bangladesh. I, th- I guess it was two years ago, um, and you know, so the, the country, sort of the politics of the country, is still very fractious. Um, but you know, I, you can sort of make the case that, from at least an economic and, and sort of social development perspective, it's a, it's a sort of been a truly remarkable story uh, since uh, you know since the time we were driving since the seventies. Bangladesh is, is, you know, one of the more rapidly developing economies, at least from yeah. then. It's, it's, it's sort of transformed itself and is, it's really sort of been on the way up. And, and you know, you see things like the, the recent uh, fire, uh, sort of, I think, testament to the fact. I mean, it was obviously a huge tragedy, but sort of the fire happened in a popular garment factory because of the garment industry is sort of the engine of, uh, you know, the Bangladeshi economy. Um, and and you know like like birth rates are falling. It's 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 sort of, sort of an interesting interesting place to study. But uh, yeah, edu- education is getting much yeah, better. Yeah, education I mean, levels really exactly. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of socioeconomic indicators yeah. where they've you know they've made impressive progress. And I think there's a kind of you know I th- I think many people mm-hmm. uh, in the United States have this sort of condescending view, which I think in part we get from Nixon and Kissinger mm-hmm. of this place is hopeless and kind of you yeah. know. Well, and like it's in certainly... the '70s, you had those like Bangladeshi, you know, freedom concerts and things like that. You know, so so you know, I, I think, yeah, I think there's still like I think where you said this public consciousness of this sort of a rabble, you know, a poor poor rabble. But um, I guess my question to you is maybe to, to tie this into your other research on on sort of you know war crimes justice. Um, I guess to what extent do you think 
that sort of a lack of accountability for what happened uh, 40 years ago uh, has sort of impacted Bangladesh's development since then? Um, I, you know, I do, you know, I do think accountability is important in these cases. I think that you have, you know, it, it's still a festering wound and it can be exploited by, um, by politicians, right? Because it, it's still, you know, it's a, it's still a live issue. People, you know, 1971 was just not that long ago. There, you know, people have living memories of it. Um, and I, you know, I do think that it would be good for the country to have some sort of reckoning with it. I think the primary problem from 1971 for the country is just overcoming the devastation, right? I mean, you know, infrastructure is trashed. But this was a place that um, it would, you know, progress was always, you know, economic progress, political progress. So it was always going to be difficult there. But it's made worse because you had, you know. The, you know, a lot of the intellectuals have been killed. A lot of the educated people have been killed. A lot of people have been killed. Um, you know, there, there's devastation. Um, you got to resettle refugees. All of these things make it make what was all, always going to be a hard task make it harder. Um, and there are, you know, these these demands for some kind of justice. Uh, there are ongoing war crimes trials. Uh, that were set up relatively recently that are handing down sentences um, and have provoked huge street demonstrations when one defendant got a life sentence rather than, than the death penalty. Then there were massive protests demanding that he, that he get the death penalty. So it's still, um, it's still really a live issue uh, in the country's politics today. Uh, great. Well, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but thank you so much, Gary. This was, this was fascinating. Great. Thanks a lot. Many thanks to Gary Bass. Please go check out his book. Uh, there'll be a link on the UN Dispatch website to his uh, Amazon page. Uh, and uh, stay tuned for more conversations coming up soon. Uh, we are revamping, relaunching, and uh, ready to, to take on the world and just bring you more interesting conversations like this. Bye for now. Thank you.